0: Welcome back to the program. We've seen that different cities often emerge as the center of their times. This has been true from the Greek city-states through the Roman Empire and right up until the present and right here in America. It seems that every major cultural, social, and political movement of the modern era seems to be anchored in its own particular place and its own decade. We watched as New York and what it represented became a kind of capital of the 50s. In Places like San Francisco and Berkeley were the center of gravity. New York and, to a certain extent, L.A. seemed to launch the post-war economies of the 1970s. Washington seemed to dominate in the 80s. And with the decline of New York, it seemed that the 80s would belong to Los Angeles. But something happened, something that moved the locus of the knowledge economy in the changing global marketplace to San Francisco and the Bay Area. What happened and why? is at the core of the years of research done by my guest Michael Storper and his colleagues and put forth in their new book, The Rise and Fall of Urban Economies. Michael Storper is a professor of urban planning, a distinguished professor of regional and international development, director of global public affairs at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs, and it is my pleasure to welcome Michael Storper here to talk about the rise and fall of urban economies, lessons from San Francisco and Los Angeles. Michael, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. It's great to have you here. If we look at the 1970s in Los Angeles, we see a very vibrant economic environment. We think that that LA is really going to continue to be a strong, vibrant part of the global economy. Talk a little bit about that context first. Indeed, if we, we can go
1: back further uh, than the 1970s and look at the 20th century in California. So there, of course, San Francisco was the older leading city and L.A. was the, the newbie, came along much later and was smaller than San Francisco until the early 20th century. And then what happened in the course of the 20th century is that L.A. grew very fast. It attracted millions of people. In fact, Its population multiplied 21 times between 1910 and 1970. But more importantly, L.A. had high quality growth, meaning that as it took in these millions of people, it also moved up the ranks of American metropolitan regions in terms of its per capita income levels, and it basically just about caught up to San Francisco in 1970 so that In 1970, San Francisco Bay Area, by which I mean what we used in our work was a 10-county Bay Area, and uh, five-county Southern California area. So San Francisco was number one, the richest American metropolitan region already in 1970, and L.A. was number four. And there was very little difference between them in the quality of their economic development. Then what happened is everything changed. By which I mean that today, or let's say a couple years ago, the last time I measured it, L.A. was number 25th among American metropolitan regions, while San Francisco was still number one. So something happened to L.A. to make it fall off of that pathway of amazing economic development that it was doing for the first two-thirds of the 20th century.
0: When we look at the economic development that was so vibrant, in that first two-thirds of the 20th century. Talk about the areas, the sectors, where that economic development was the strongest, because it seems that that in looking at the arc of those particular areas, we begin to understand where some of the fall-off took place.
1: Well, exactly. So, L.A. was a sort sort of paradigmatic entrepreneurial new technology kind of place for a lot of the 20th century. Of course, it began in many ways with uh, the movie and entertainment industry, which initially got established as a kind of breakaway from New York, from the uh, the vaudeville industry uh, on the East Coast. And there were many reasons why the uh, the entrepreneurs who would make the movie industry what it was came out to L.A. But when they did, they developed a, uh, a very entrepreneurial culture, and they developed basically a way of making movies that was modern. They had a kind of a factory system for doing it. Mm -hmm. But then there was wave after wave of technology industries, for example, aviation. Aviation actually had its beginnings uh, mostly on the East Coast and in the Midwest. But by 1915, Harry Chandler, who was of the Chandler family that owned the L.A. Times, attracted back to L.A. a man named Donald Douglas. Donald Douglas was understood by Chandler to be an engineering genius. And um, what Chandler did was he got together what we would today call venture capital. We didn't call it that in those days. But basically, he got a bunch of his friends together and said, "Uh, this guy looks good. We really should get him back here from Ohio and let him do his thing. And he did. And then what happened is that Douglas revolutionized air travel in 1935 when he invented the DC-3, which was the, the airplane that took basically 80% of all airplane sales in the world by the end of the 1930s. That's how good a technology wa- it was. Indeed, there are still 10,000 of them flying around the world because it's an, it's an unkillable airplane. It's that good in technological terms. But then, of course, there's more. The war uh, happened, and in many ways that was fortuitous to Southern California because it already had the airplane industry. And so what would become the modern aviation, the aerospace sector developed there. But it wasn't just because it was already there. It's because the, just like Silicon Valley today, technologists kept flowing into L.A. with new ideas because they saw that it was an ecosystem where you did that kind of thing. So through the 40s and the 50s, there was wave after wave of new technology, mostly in things like missiles, guidance systems, and indeed, even in the early semiconductor industry. Because the early semiconductors were mostly used in guidance and communication systems for the defense department. So the kind of hot technology was in L.A. And, and so that was kind of emblematic of L.A.'s, LA's entrepreneurial culture. And it, of course, with entrepreneurship from little firms becoming big, becoming we might say household names, and that was L.A. in a lot of the 20th century.
0: Given that L.A. had the aerospace industry and all the components that that were part of that, as you just detailed, and a growing and burgeoning entertainment industry, how did L.A. then begin to lose its its mojo? Really? So that's actually the subject of our book, as we we try to figure that out because.
1: Um, if you look at L.A. in 1970, it's got a lot of the elements that should make it uh, a key city in what we would then call the new economy about 10 years later. For one thing, so it has a big semiconductor industry and a lot of the firms that are inventing this technology. Mm-hmm. Indeed, uh, there's an anecdote that a lot of people don't know, which is that the first Internet message was actually sent from UCLA. It was sent from Leonard Kleinrock's computer in the computer uh, engineering department. And uh, Kleinrock was the inventor of the digital packet switch, and he'd come out from MIT and joined UCLA. But in addition, um, L.A. had lots of uh, skilled people. It had very, very good research universities, for example, Caltech which is pretty systematically rated as one of the world's top two or three technology-producing universities, and a lot of these assets. And then what seemed to happen was that every time these new technologies got turned into what we might say are commercially vibrant sectors, L.A. failed, and guess who did it? It was the Bay Area. Um, That happened in both, uh, we might say, the information technology sector, it happened in um, it happened in the biotech industry, where there's a really interesting story of how the two regions differed. And it also happened in a smaller way when L.A. lost its banking sector. L.A. had a huge banking sector which was based on property development, basically in mortgaging and financing residential construction. It was one of the leading places in the country, as one can imagine, because Southern California was one of the biggest real uh, real estate development processes of the modern world in the 20th century. And then what happened was that as the, bank, as the finance and banking industries changed in the 70s with um, new kind of globalization and new technologies, LA's banks just kind of dropped off. Many of them got bought up, many of them closed down, but it never made it into the new world of uh, big-time investment banking.
0: To what extent did creativity in entrepreneurialism, what some would call the creative class, really become a key part of the growth of the bay area that there was a technical class that existed in los angeles but the creative extension of that really moved to the bay area
1: yeah so that's really the 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 most interesting question which is why did a region that seemed to have a lot of that creativity then when a new wave of industries come along that are the center of the action when we go from the old economy to the new economy, why is it that the people who are there in LA don't continue to be as creative and why, by contrast, does the Bay Area surge ahead and seem to capture that? And there's a few clues about the Bay Area. So one of them, of course, there's a standard story that's told, which I think is actually um, not quite um, complete or accurate. The story is that Stanford University had a very dynamic uh, dean called Fred Terman. Fred Terman set up the, uh, the basically the business park where he allowed Stanford to cooperate with the nascent uh, IT industry and that somehow that created a kind of uh, link between researchers, innovators, and we might say entrepreneurs. And that, that was what was different about the Bay Area from L.A., what people actually forget is that the Stanford um, Research Institute was the third attempt that Terman had made to establish it, and the first one was in 1945 in L.A., except that the leaders in L.A. couldn't get their act together to actually make it happen in Southern California. It took Terman a long time to get any traction on his idea. That's one thing. Another thing that emerges from um, the Bay area is that in the beginning, you have a kind of a similar set of entrepreneurs in the Bay area and IT as in LA, you have people like Hewlett and Packer who actually start up their firm in the 1930s and they're doing the same thing as a lot of their friends down in Southern California, meaning they're tinkering around, they're working for the defense department. They're uh, they're trying to get new kinds of technologies launched and of course, and, and they do fine, but then something really critical happens. well, two things critical happened in the 1960s and 70s. One is that William Shockley, who is the in, inventor of the semiconductor, he comes out to the Bay Area from New Jersey. The folklore has it that um, he came out because he wanted to be near his aging mother who lived in Menlo Park, which is, of course, an epicenter of Silicon Valley. But there, it turned out that what, that that Shockley was um, was, according to most accounts, a rather difficult manager. He had brought with him eight leading technologists in IT, and it's, and he would do things like have public, uh, sort of like public humiliation sessions and call people names in public. And then one day, all of the other people quit, and it's it's called the Shockley Massacre, mm-hmm. and all of these eight became startups. So they became critical startups in the semiconductor industry. So there was kind of an accident there that maybe broke it open. And in any case, what happened was that the firms in Southern California were continuing to make very fancy semiconductors for the defense industry, but they never really got that interested in making, we might say, small, practical, cheap semiconductors for ordinary people. And that's where the story gets even more interesting in the Bay Area. Because what happens is that the Bay Area has a second – it has this engineering culture that's pretty good. And like I say, it goes back to Hewlett and Packard to the 30s and in many ways parallels L.A. But there's a second culture that only the Bay Area has in the 1960s. And that's called the appropriate technology or alternative technology movement. And this is – it's actually a growth of the sort of the Bay Area counterculture. And many of this is concerned with uh, industrial society and big technologies and wanting to make technology more friendly, more, more ecological, more community-oriented. Well, you could say, well, what does it have to do with the IT industry? It actually has a lot. Because it turns out that um, Steve Jobs revealed the importance of this movement when he gave his 2005 uh, speech uh, for Stanford graduation. And at the end of his speech, he says, You know what my Bible was when I was getting started? He said it was this thing called the Whole Earth Catalog. The Whole Earth Catalog was the Bible of the the appropriate technology movement in the Bay Area. And Jobs said that's what enabled him to see that the future of IT would not be in sort of big systems for, um, say, the Pentagon or for, you know, sort of corporate use, but that it had to be made beautiful user-friendly, or what he, what they would call in those days, appropriate. And that story, you might say, well, maybe it's an apocryphal story, you know, it's just kind of urban legend type stuff. But it turns out that it isn't. It's backed up by lots of other people. There are many people who were gathered together at this thing called the Xerox, Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, Xerox Park. And Xerox Park was a very unusual place because it basically brought the Bay Area sort of hippie alternative culture people together with the sort of straight-laced engineers. And that was one of the crucibles of this early focus on turning IT from, we might say, boutique, very expensive products for the Pentagon into usable, uh, consumer-oriented technology for the masses. So the Bay Area had a culture That brought together different groups and caused, as it were, some kind of cross-fertilization to happen so that it uh, it reinvented the world of technology. Down south, this never happened. The engineers stayed within their corporations. They talked to themselves. They didn't change their ways. So the two regions went in very different directions in terms of their business cultures.
0: In many ways, in the Bay Area, it was kind of the perfect storm of events that happened. I mean, well, there was they was the counterculture leftover impact in the Bay Area in in the later seventies. There were things like Xerox Park that brought everybody together. The Shockley massacre that you talked about that created companies like Intel and so many others, and and that that all of these things, not unlike a kind of big bang, created this perfect amalgamation, coupled with as you mentioned earlier the amount of money and capital that was available because of the banking industry moving up there.
1: That's right. So it was a perfect storm. But it turns out that when we look at the cities and even whole countries that take off, when they take off, when these kind of bursts of newness and creativity happen, it's, it, is, it is this kind of mixture of things where you get, on the one hand, you've just got to have the basic talent level. But secondly, it looks like um, over over many kinds of cities and many kinds of periods, it's the ability to cross-fertilize, is to get the people thinking in different ways by having contact with people who think somewhat differently and, of course, to bring new kinds of resources to them. So the venture capital story is a really interesting one because something also happened to make people in the Bay Area with capital say, well, we can do financing of firms differently from how the banks traditionally finance firms. So it's this kind of getting out of the box thing, but you know, that, and that, that's just, a, um, uh, it's a result of something bringing different kinds of people together into networks and making them connect around the, we might say the new opportunities that are offered. And so actually I often say, and this, uh, this can aggravate people in Southern California, which is that Southern California, paradoxically, it's culturally and in terms of lifestyles, an extremely innovative place, but its business culture has actually rather has become old-fashioned and conservative compared to that of the Bay Area.
0: It was also the political climate in Los Angeles at the time that was equally conservative, and as you talked about, the aerospace industry and its connections to the Pentagon and large institutions really was antithetical to the kind of creativity that we saw happening in the Bay Area. I think that's exactly right. It's one of the deep
1: sort of paradoxes of this transition, which is that the region that succeeds the best in capitalism is the one where the engineers are talking to these crazy sort of wild-eyed, very experimental, but very brilliant uh, alternative technology people Whereas down in LA, actually, that mentality of, of course, first of all, we work for the Pentagon, so we can't talk to anybody. There's secrecy. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we really culturally wouldn't want to talk to them anyway because they're a bunch of people who we're deeply suspicious of. And therefore, this cross-fertilization of ideas doesn't happen. And there's another thing about LA that's peculiar. Which is that Hollywood is a very dynamic industry. It survived um, in the 19, from the 1950s onward. Hollywood was basically its business model was broken up by the Supreme Court because prior to then, actually it was 1948. Mm-hmm. Prior to then, movie studios could own their own um, theater chains, so that if you went to a typical American city, you got to only watch the movies that the studio that happened to own your local movie theaters was making. And that was broken up by the Supreme Court as an antitrust um, decision in 1948. And then television came along and cut into the market. So Hollywood had to do something. It was in a crisis. And Hollywood became a new economy industry before the age, meaning it turned into this flexible networked ecosystem Most of the big studios, they outsourced almost everything. They turned to a radical new way of innovating their product, not just making one film after another that looked exactly like the last one. And so they did this whole new economy thing. And it's sitting there right in the middle of L.A. when the real new economy, which is based on the same model, comes along. And the problem, though, is here again, Hollywood doesn't talk. To technology people. The language of, of art and the language of engineering, in L.A. at least, don't mix. And of course, the nature of the city, very dispersed, right. separate communities, you know, far flung, lends itself to that kind of social system where that, that, that perfect storm that you described, where, you know, if someone in Hollywood had had a good friend who was deep into the tech industry maybe it would have gone otherwise but it wasn't the kind of social connectedness that that existed in the bay area and I think that really hurt L.A. as it moved in, as it tried to move into the new economy.
0: Right. I mean, to a large extent, and you touched on it a moment ago. It was a function of the geography of Los Angeles as much as anything else where where the Hollywood community and the entertainment industry was pretty much focused on the west side of Los Angeles, where you had the aerospace industry and technology in deep parts of the East Valley and El Segundo. And, and there really was no connection.
1: Well, actually, let me kind of push back a little bit on that. Um, We're getting somewhere, but there's kind of a paradox here, too. If you think about it, the technology, the kind of aerospace technology belt is right around sort of just south of L.A. airport. That's not very far from the west side neighborhoods where the film people live, actually. In fact, a lot of them, a lot of the engineers and the film people used to live in the posher areas of Santa Monica and Westwood. So in many ways, Silicon Valley is farther away from Berkeley or San Francisco than, say, El Segundo is mm-hmm. from Venice or Santa Monica. So it's not exactly physical distance, in my opinion. It's more like, we would say, network or social distance. LA is, of course, very big and fragmented, but the Bay Area is actually pretty physically big if you think about San Jose to Napa, yeah. uh, especially with traffic leave date in both <laughs> regions. But my point is more that it's more about when there are social networks, when there are connections between people, they talk. When there aren't, they don't. And I think that's really the key thing that, um, that differentiates the Bay Area from L.A. And we measured this in, in one part of our book where we took the key business leadership organizations of the region and we did a kind of a fancy technical analysis where you see who sits on whose board of directors and how many connections there are between different people in different um, different sectors. And there is no equivalent in Southern California to the Bay Area's leading um, business organization, business leadership organization, which is the Bay Area Council. It's five times more connected across its region than any of the leading organizations are in L.A. And that's just kind of like, it's like a trace element of the difference in, um, in a region where It's likely for more connections of new ideas to be made than one of L.A. where you have these kind of big cloistered communities not talking to one another, and hence, I think, not exchanging ideas.
0: To what extent is this an extension, a way to measure in some ways, this whole idea of creative class and and how it fits into the larger landscape of, of a social and political climate?
1: And in many ways, this idea, the creative class idea, which comes from my friend uh, Rich Florida, um, he's pointing out that uh, there are people who are, in more conventional terms, we call them innovative entrepreneurs. And this isn't actually anything, it's not new to our age. Like I said, if you look at L.A. over the first two-thirds of the 20th century, it had its creative class. It was in all of those industries from, say, uh, movies and television to aerospace and, and so on. New York has, a, ha, ha, has had many waves of creative class. Boston's had four centuries of different creative classes. So successful places over time, they always have a creative class that is up to the challenges of its age, by which I mean every 50 or 60 years, capitalism changes what the leading industries are. Those are the industries where the entrepreneurship happens, where the new firms can enter, where capital moves in, where jobs are created, and where a lot of profits created. So that's just how the system works. And then the older industries, they get old and they get kind of – they get taken over and routinized, and usually they get moved away because they don't need to be in expensive urban areas anymore. And then in today's, in today's period, they get moved uh, basically to uh, developing countries. So they're not any longer the motors. Of employment and entrepreneurialism and action in big, expensive urban economies. So you have to have a constant, ongoing, creative class that renews itself. Right? It has to keep doing this and capturing the new opportunities and essentially moving on. So this is um, this is a very important, powerful idea. And we might say that the last thirty or forty years, the creative class has revolved around stuff like high tech, more recently around biotech, it's got, there's some creative classes in things like banking, which I think is a problematic creative class Mm -hmm. right now, because in many ways it's become basically kind of self-rewarding and, um, and has kind of some, some, some problems in what it does for the whole economy. But the point is in the next 10, 15 years, there might be another, uh, area of creativity, that dynamic metropolitan areas need. And the question is what's that going to be and, and which places will be able to capture it.
0: When we look back at this period that we've been talking about, how did the East Coast get left out of the equation almost entirely? I mean, there was a lot of development in tech or, or, or some amount along Route 128 in Boston, but essentially the East Coast was left out at the time. So there's a classical
1: book in in, in my field which analyzes this, and it comes from Annalise Saxenian, who is a professor at UC Berkeley. And uh, Annalise Axenian, she did a book in 1994, where she was one of the earliest people to study Silicon Valley and Route 128 comparatively. And it looked from the 70s and 80s like 128 might be... Uh, a kind of silicon valley of the east and and Emily Saxidian's analysis in many ways was the inspiration for what we just did for l a and San Francisco in our book, meaning that she emphasized the characteristics of the creative or business classes, the social networks in a in a region, the capacity for change. And what she showed was that the early lead of boston's route one twenty eight got essentially uh, closed off because organizationally, the main firms could not get out of the box of functioning like old-line corporations, whereas all those things happened that I talked about a minute ago in the Bay Area, the uh, the kind of cross-fertilization mm. of hippies and high-techers of engineers with the alternatives, with the uh, the organizations like Xerox Park, the new venture capital movement, the Shockley, all those things happened to not allow that kind of, we um, might say, rigidity and conservatism in the Bay Area that also happened in Route 128. But we could say about Boston, the good news is that it had other things that were new economy-ish that it could do, notably in, um, in in the in the medical area, area in um, in medical areas, hospitals, pharma, and so on. And the same is true for New York. New York did not become a big, we might say, epicenter of the IT industry, but it scored on banking, basically, which is another one of the big sectors of the new economy.
0: As we look at this, are there parts of it that as you look at it historically and and other centers that that have sprung up through the years in other areas and other creative arenas, is there an aspect of this that is cyclical? Can we look at, at the movement now, the, the density of, of what's happening, for example, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and some companies and some people moving away, the, the, some of it, in fact, moving back to, to Los Angeles, to, to Venice, to Silicon Beach. Could we see this shift yet again?
1: Yes. So um, we know the history of urban economies is that Success breeds a certain number of potential contradictions. One thing is, success makes you more expensive. People, you know, everyone wants to get into the Bay Area. Well, as of course, it's driven up the housing prices, and at a certain point, that can become a problem. It's what we in economics call the sort of the diseconomies of urban growth or of or of uh, urban clustering. Now, the question is, at what point does that become a real problem? It becomes a real problem at the point where the region is no longer innovative, meaning if, if the region's activities are no longer really dependent on being in the Bay Area and the Bay Area gets very costly, then they will leave. Now, Emily Saxebian actually pointed out that from the, from, already from the 1970s, the more, we might say, manufacturing-oriented functions of the IT industry already moved out of Silicon Valley. What happened to, has, has happened to keep Silicon Valley and the whole Bay Area going is that Silicon Valley keeps reinventing itself. It's now, some people call it Silicon Valley 7.0 for the different waves of technology that it's dominated. So it's lost the old ones because they've, they've basically become... Cost-oriented, and they're you know they're in they're in the south or they're abroad now. That's all the kind of manufacturing, but the design and conception stuff stays. So that's true of every urban economy everywhere. So that's the problem for L.A. Though it, there is some action in uh, in Silicon Beach. There's a, there's a bit of um, kind of a latecomer technology movement. But the thing about L.A. See, is that it's kind of caught between two worlds. It's too expensive to get. All of this activity that leaves urban areas looking for cheaper places, l a is not Georgia or china it 's an expensive urban area, but it 's not innovative enough to have the high income levels that it had in the 1970s and it isn't and it hasn 't been innovative enough to stay in the league with places like Boston, Washington, New York, and San Francisco. so in a way l a is sort of caught between. Uh, what caught between what what kind of place it wants to be, and really the only choice for a high cost area like L.A. is to move up, meaning to become more, we might say, creative, entrepreneurial, and innovative again, because that corresponds to it being expensive. But all urban areas, like you say, hmm. will shed the more routinized kind of older parts of whatever creators, creative sector they're in. That's just part of the natural geographical pattern of the economy.
0: It's interesting when you look at L.A., what filled in after a while with things like, I mean, first of all, the port, obviously, which is so successful, yeah. but also manufacturing, clothing, fashion. It, it What filled in never really took hold in any kind of a, a major and fundamental way.
1: Well, I mean, there yes, of course, there have been some interesting things going on um, we, in the fashion industry in LA, like American Apparel, mm. uh, unfortunately they just went bankrupt. But <laughs> but it was a really it's a really interesting you know was an interesting experiment. The problem there too though is that LA can't compete as a cheap manufacturing center for clothing. Clothing is basically made in developing countries now. So the only way that a big city can ha- that's expensive in terms of wages and land can have a, have a big fashion industry is if it goes very upmarket. So it has to become a New York, a Paris, or a Milan. It can't make, as it were, downmarket clothing in a very expensive city. Same thing, the port, you know, the port was, was, was a reasonably good um, strategy for LA to pursue. It, it built the infrastructure to capture the China trade the problem, though, is that a port, a port is not a high enough wage industry to support an expensive city like L.A. and make it a high-income city. The vast majority of jobs in ports and logistics are low to medium wages. The same is true for manufacturing. The golden days when L.A. would be the center of big-time, uh, we might say, mass manufacturing, that's over because mass manufacturing doesn't need to be in big, extensive cities anymore, it goes to China. So this is the this is kind of the, the the structural problem that L.A. has to face, and unfortunately, its leaders haven't got the they really haven't understood the problem. They've been very backward looking.
0: Which leads to one final question before I let you go, which is: What role, as you look at this in both L.A. and the Bay Area in this this period that we're talking about, what role, if any, has political leadership played? in these evolutions? Well,
1: our political leaders, they they don't directly plan economic development, but they they do two things. One is they can make sometimes some very big infrastructure investments, so that's like the port in LA. And the thing about the port in LA is it's not that it was bad, but what it did is it, it, it it took up a lot of political attention and I think got the leadership to thinking that they were doing something to make their region future secure, but of course, because they weren't doing the right thing, they didn't have attention left over to do to do to to do more things. Um, more generally, of course, you know political leadership, what I would argue is is it creates conversations, meaning the the role of political leadership is to bring the parties together and to have them understand what kind of region they are and what kind of challenges it faces, and to get that right. If it gets it wrong, and like I say, in L.A., they got it wrong because they kept on saying, oh, we'll just go back to the age when we had these huge manufacturing firms, and we'll, you know, we'll have this huge middle class based on high-wage manufacturing. And, uh, and we, you know, those were our glory days. And if we can just keep our land cheap enough and get enough manufacturing in here, we'll do fine. This is a totally false analysis, as it turns out. Um, so that they had the wrong conversation. And I think in, in the Bay area, oh, there were fits and starts. Nobody, nobody can ever look forward in exactly the right way, but the Bay area had more of the right kind of conversations. People very early on got the idea that the Bay area was a high cost place. And the only way to be a high cost place is to get industries that can pay high wages. And then you're, then, then you're consistent at least, but what you can't be is a high cost place with low wages. Right? So the Bay Area actually got its conversation right. And I think that is, is, is and you can see that really clearly in, um, in our book. We analyzed the reports that were written by all these governmental agencies, and they just have a clear difference between the two regions and what they were saying.
0: Michael Storper, the book is The Rise and Fall of Urban Economies, Lessons from San Francisco and Los Angeles. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.